thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Adam Murphy. And with me, Chris Smith. Today is the UK right to lengthen the gap between COVID vaccines. Evidence that coronavirus infection dense male fertility and a very strange rodent with a very strange accent. Also, we are looking at nuclear power and asking, in today's world, whether we really need nuclear power. Are the alternatives really practical alternatives or are we just kidding ourselves? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This week, the UK passed the grim milestone of 100,000 COVID fatalities. But on a more positive note, two pharmaceutical companies, that's Novavax and Janssen, have both announced solid phase three results for their new coronavirus vaccines. And in the UK, an amazing 8 million people have now received at least one dose of either the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines. But apart from recent moves on the part of the EU, which could affect supplies of vaccines to countries outside the bloc, many are also concerned about the decision to delay the second doses of their vaccine in order to protect more people in the short term. The British Medical Association have been vocal, calling for an urgent review of the UK's strategy and saying the gap between the first and second doses should be reduced to six weeks. The doctors' union said the UK's approach is increasingly isolated internationally and is proving difficult to justify. On the other hand, other experts have defended the decision and some have even slapped down the BMA as being ill-informed, arguing instead that the delay may even lead to better long-term immunity. So what does University of Nottingham infectious disease epidemiologist Keith Neal make of all of this and what does he think should be our long-term vaccination plans for COVID-19? If you've got 10,000 doses of vaccine, you could give 10,000 people 70% protection, or you could give 5,000 people 90% protection. That means we protect a lot more people. Also, if the fact that the vaccine does interrupt transmission, we would actually stop more transmission chains by doing it this way. Do we actually have evidence that it works like that, though? Because one of the criticisms that people have been levelling at those responsible for making this change is that they are departing from the clinical trial evidence, they're departing from what the manufacturers have initially said should happen, and therefore this is risky. The manufacturers are constrained by what they're allowed to say by their own pharmaceutical association. We often give vaccines for against viruses naught and six months apart, as for hepatitis A and the human papilloma virus, and they work very well. Having a short period between the two vaccines was really a necessity so that we could get the results of the vaccine trials in quickly. If we had a six-month gap, 
we wouldn't still know what the results were. Therefore, are we actually trying to learn right now what the answer to this question is? In other words, are there various measures in place to learn from what we are doing, having changed this a little bit, to find out whether we are on solid ground by doing this? Part of the advantage of a national health service system is that we'll be able to identify anybody who gets COVID after they've had a vaccine. So we'll be able to rapidly identify whether it is or is not working to the degree that we hope it does. And is there any evidence emerging yet? Because obviously we've got six million people or more now have had vaccines. So there's a very significant number of people who can be followed I actually haven't seen any of the published data, although I did hear of one care home where as part of a routine screening, an outbreak was identified quite widespread in the home. They'd been vaccinated 10 and 11 days earlier and none of them had got ill. They were all asymptomatic. What's your thoughts on how the the rollout's actually going with the vaccine now? And and are, are you encouraged by the sorts of numbers that we're seeing? Do you think this is enough? Having been involved in planning mass vaccination campaigns before, I'm very encouraged about how far it has gone. Yesterday's figures suggested over one in 11 of the entire population had been done. And we're up to three quarters of the over 80s where most of the deaths occur. This is an amazing achievement, really, from having not had even known about the disease, really, this time last year. And looking to the future, obviously we don't know because we don't have a crystal ball. What's going to happen in terms of next winter? Do we have any insights yet about how long the protection is going to last from this vaccine? And how are we going to plan for the virus possibly sidestepping these vaccines if we continue to get variants and things like that coming along? I'd like to think that we can model it on the flu programme. We know that the flu virus changes much faster than the coronaviruses do. And simply, if we actually have to have a flu and COVID vaccine simultaneously in the winter, then we've got one arm for flu vaccine and the other one for the COVID vaccine. We can actually tweak the COVID vaccine in about six weeks, which is much faster than we can change the flu vaccine. Given that now we have a large army of people who train to give vaccinations, we might have to actually be able to scale up our flu vaccine campaign in general and have us flu COVID vaccine. Are you optimistic? I'm not pessimistic. I mean, I continually hear stories, oh, the vaccine won't work, it will come back, the virus will change. Each of those we are able to defeat and we are learning rapidly about how to do things better. I think what will happen, we need to have better ways of trying to identify coronavirus in the population and the lateral flow devices will help this and they will, the main aim of them is to find people who are asymptomatic so we may be in a position of having regular testing for a while. It's going to run and run isn't it? Keith Neal there. Very much so. Now the new coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is a respiratory infection But that doesn't mean the effects of the virus are confined solely to the nose, throat and lungs. Indeed, a study from researchers in Germany this week looking at men who caught COVID in Iran has found that the infection can have long-term effects on fertility. Indeed, their study found that sperm counts drop and there were also signs of persistent inflammatory changes in the male genital tract, at least in the short term, for about two or three months. Bill College is a male reproductive physiologist. He's at Cambridge University and I asked him to take me through what the new study is showing. This is a really fascinating study. Scientists have looked at the fertility 
of individuals in Iran to see what effect the COVID-19 virus might have on their reproductive parameters. They actually studied a group of 84 males that were recovering from a COVID infection, and they compared that group to 105 healthy aged match individuals that didn't have a COVID infection. And they looked at a, a variety of different factors, including substances normally found in semen. And they also measured indicators of fertility, such as the number of sperm and the motility of the sperm. How often did they look at these people? They looked every 10 days or so after they'd got over the viral infection and they looked out to about 60 days. And were all of the people equivalently unwell? Were these all hospitalised patients or were they people with mild illness? They all had the virus. Some of them were sort of milder symptoms than others. Some of them were more severe. Some of them had to be hospitalised, but the point is that when they were looking at these individuals, they had got over the viral infection. So they're looking at what the impact might be after the viral infection rather than during the virus. So what did they actually find them when they followed them up both at short time points compared with, you know, as time went on, what did they see? They looked for substances in the semen and they found an increased level of these specific uh, factors, which are called interleukins that modulate the activity of the immune system. They also looked at the number of sperm and the motility of the sperm, and they found that these were compromised in the individuals that had had the virus. And did they stay compromised? Because that's a critical thing, isn't it? You could argue, well, you've just been very unwell. It's possible that that's the the cause of having a a, a lower level of some of these markers of fertility in the short term. But what happens if if you look at longer time points? Did it bounce back? Well, I mean, the the real surprise with this study is that these individuals had compromised fertility out to about 60 days after they had had the infection. So up to two months later, there was a suggestion that they were starting to recover. But even at two months, they still had problems with sperm counts and the production of these interleukins. I suspect that in a longer time frame, they'll probably get better. But it does illustrate that you get the viral infection, you recover, but you can still have some health issues that can go out up to two months. And presumably, although they've got sort of markers that we know go along with a person having a lower level of fertility, they haven't followed this through and said, and now we've tested to show these people really are suffering from lower fertility. No, they certainly haven't. Um, So they've got uh, lower sperm counts, but they haven't shown whether that affects fertility. So they don't know whether it would affect uh, the ability of that individual to have a child. They also haven't done any direct look at the testes in terms of its structure. They've just looked at the parameters in the semen. So they don't really know what's going on within the testes. Is there any risk that it could do damage to the DNA in the sperm in such a way that that people could have babies with genetic problems in the aftermath of the father having what might amount to infection with coronavirus in the testes? There is a suggestion in in this paper that they have found there could be damage to the DNA within the sperm. Hopefully that will only be a short-term effect. And the beauty of of the testes is that it has a population of cells which can divide and replenish to produce more sperm. As long as there's no damage to that population of stem cells, then 
the individual should be okay and should be able to make normal sperm later. So should people then, do you think, as a cautionary note, avoid trying for a baby if they're in the immediate aftermath of COVID infection? Well, there's a risk if you have a COVID infection and and it's affecting the quality of your sperm. You may want to uh, perhaps not try and have a baby. It might be sensible to to wait um, a few months. And do women have anything to worry about? There's no indication that women have anything to worry about. The process of sperm formation and egg formation is significantly different. Hopefully it wouldn't cause a similar effect. But again, that study hasn't been done. Bill College there commenting on the paper just out in the journal Reproduction by Justice Liebig University researcher Bezad Malaki. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. This was built by DeepMind um, and it was called Alpha Zero. We review the biggest releases. Can I just say, he's a bold assassin. He's also a really smartly dressed one. His, His suit must come from Hugo Boss. And because there's a simulator for almost anything we play some of the strangest ones available. You're sort of uh, playing as a very um, destructive puppy, shall we say. But then again, if you've ever had a dog. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, coming up later in the programme, the current state of nuclear power and also plans for the nuclear provision in our country in the future. Also, we'll hear about a drug that's harmless for us humans, but it kills off biting insects. That could be potentially very good news for malaria and also sleeping sickness. Joe Biden is, of course, now the new president of the USA, assuming responsibility for both the largest economy and the country with by far the greatest number of COVID cases the world has seen. So what's going to happen now? Will the $2 trillion COVID relief and stimulus plan he's proposing work? Or will he, like his predecessor Donald Trump, fail to rein in a pandemic that is still spreading like wildfire? Dennis Carroll, former head of the pandemic programme for the USA's International Development Department, told Phil Sansom why the situation in his country matters even to those outside it. The United States accounts for, what, 5% of the world's population? Yet we account for 25, 30 percent of all of the transmission that's going on in the world today. You know, it's important what's going on in the United States, not because it's the United States. What's important is that there are 330 million people in this country. And right now, uh, the virus has free reign to go anywhere and infect anyone almost. That leaves the rest of the world vulnerable because we've seen new variants of this virus are emerging. And these variants are really a reflection of how many people have been infected and how many opportunities this virus has had to replicate. And in the United States right now, we're seeing a greater frequency of replication just by the sheer number of people who are infected. We do not have a system to look for new variants. Could you then talk me through Biden's strategy as he's communicated it? Well, first and foremost, he signed a series of what are called executive orders, taking steps to ensure that we would maximize the distribution and availability of the vaccine. He has put very much in play 
100 million Americans being vaccinated within the first 100 days of his presidency. And he is making sure that there's both the logistics and the necessary training available to ensure that the infrastructure to deliver these vaccines are in play and that people have access to them. He made Dr. Anthony Fauci his chief medical advisor, and Tony Fauci immediately took steps to signal to the World Health Organization that the U.S. has rejoined the WHO, reaffirmed our commitment and our support for WHO, but in particular, signal the U.S.'s commitment to be a partner in COVAX, the international effort led by WHO and Gavi and UNICEF to make equitable access of vaccines to countries around the world. You said 100 million vaccinated in the first 100 days. That's almost a third of the U.S. population, isn't it? 100 million people is essentially one third of the American population, but they'll also need a second dose. So it's basically saying that there'll be 1 million people vaccinated per day. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, there has been a dramatic uptick just in the last uh, five days. And we've been averaging somewhere on the order of about 1.2, 1.3 million vaccinations per day. But let's also be clear, if you're vaccinating 1 million people a day, by the time we get to the end of 2021, we'll only have three quarters of the American population vaccinated, fully vaccinated with two doses, meaning that the ability to have some measure of normalcy um, stretches beyond this particular year. The USA is obviously a very corporate country, and nowhere is that more evident than with healthcare. And so when it comes to giving out the vaccine, are the 100 million people who hopefully get it in the first 100 days, are they going to be the people that can afford it or the people that need it? Well, first and foremost, uh, the vaccines will be made available at no cost. A number of corporate entities to step forward to say they're prepared to bring the full force of their corporate capabilities to support the distribution of this vaccine. Major corporations like Walgreens and CVS that are primary um, access to pharmaceutical goods across the United States. We've similarly seen Amazon say that they're prepared to use their logistics distribution capabilities. So it's a very positive step forward, particularly in terms of addressing some of these issues about equitable access. That was Dennis Carroll, currently head of the Global Virome Project. Well, we're all now very aware, of course, of the impact of diseases caused by microorganisms. We are, after all, living through a pandemic and have put up with coronavirus for the last 12 months. But it isn't just viruses that can cause disease. Don't forget the impact of parasites. They're very big business too. And in particular, African sleeping sickness, which is called trypanosomiasis and is spread by tsetse flies, kills thousands. But this week, scientists have shown there's a drug called nitisinone, which is already used in humans for one particular rare genetic disease. But it turns out that this is kryptonite, for want of a better phrase, for tsetse flies and potentially also other blood-sucking insects as well. And Martin Kashara heard how this works from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine's Alvaro Acosta Serrano. Tsetse flies 
who are responsible for transmitting a deadly disease in Africa known as African trypanosomiasis and need to digest blood quickly coming from the blood meal that they take from humans or animals. Uh, they need to metabolize quickly some of these blood components. One of those is known as tyrosine. Tyrosine is an amino acid. We knew that when we block that, the flies die. So by using a specific drug, niticinone, which is the drug that is currently used to treat a, a rare human disease, and when sensitive flies are exposed to that drug, they quickly die. How did you find out the drug that you've used in your study actually kills the tsetse flies? My collaborator in this work, Dr. Marcus Terkel, he discovered that degradation of tyrosine for other blood-feeding insects is also uh, lethal, is fatal for the insects if we block it. So he proposed to study this in tsetse because tsetse has a very fast rate of blood digestion. And the faster it is, the likely is this drug will act better. And in fact, within a few hours that the fly is exposed in the presence of blood, for example, uh, definitely they get killed by the action of this drug. So does killing these flies actually stop people getting the disease? Absolutely. The best we can do is to reduce the populations of flies that will be close to some urban and more rural areas. So in terms of uh, controlling the diseases, in this case, sexy flies transmit, this kind of strategy that we are suggesting would be one way to control transmission in actually in parallel with a continued supplying drug treatments and using other ways to control sexy fly population. So could this drug work in other blood-sucking things? This drug work literally for any blood feeder insect that transmits a disease in wild places. One of those diseases that we are actually working on is on mosquitoes, anophilic mosquitoes that transmit malaria in Africa. And we got very exciting preliminary data suggesting that we could potentially use this drug in different ways to control uh, mosquito populations. So how would you see this drug working actually in the real world? Well, there's a long way to go now, and we need to really do the uh, field test. Depending how we use this for animals or for humans in perhaps in outbreak situation, we can say this could help in partnership with other strategies to control what is called vector-borne diseases. Is the drug expensive if it's going to be used in countries where money could be tight? The drug is a little bit pricey at the moment because it's only used to treat these rare genetic diseases. But also there are thousands of compounds working in a similar way. So the idea is to screen for, for novel compounds, which would be cheaper. So I think there is great potential to exploit these compounds depending on the biology and depending on the kind of insects that we try to control. Fascinating and potentially really important stuff coming out there. And you can read more about this new way to use an old drug to control disease in PLOS Biology. Well, from biting insects to other animals now. And can you guess what made this sound? Naked mole rats are moles that live on the ground and they come from East Africa and they live in desert regions where there's not a lot of vegetation. 
Now that's Gary Lewin. He's at the Max Delbruck Centre for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. He works on these bizarre creatures, and they are bizarre. They can live for 32 years, and they're completely insensitive for some bizarre reason to acid and also to the spicy ingredients that are in chilli peppers. They're also highly cancer-resistant, and they can survive for hours in very low oxygen conditions. They are, unfortunately, though, also extremely ugly. But now scientists can add a new item to the naked mole rat CV. It turns out they speak to each other, and they do it in different dialects. Eva Higginbotham heard how. They are very unusual because they live on the ground in very large colonies. And the colony can be up to 300 animals, but on average it's about 40 animals. These animals are really strange because they also have a queen, just like ants and bees. And when you keep morats, you realize that they always constantly seem to be talking to each other in the colony. And so we were interested to see what these sounds are for. And that's when we started to look And the most common vocalization really sounds like a bird. It's called a soft chirp. We decided to analyze these soft chirps. And so we looked at thousands of these soft chirps and we figured out with a very special mathematical program that actually every single animal had its individual soft chirp. So each animal had its own voice. How did you actually make these recordings of the mole rats? Were you sort of taking a mole rat and holding it up to a microphone and hoping it would make some noise? More or less, yeah. So we take each individual animal out and put it in front of a microphone and push it gently and then they will start to vocalise. And we did this hundreds and hundreds of times to get thousands and thousands of vocalisations. Now, the soft chirp is only one of 24 vocalisations that the mole rat makes, but it makes up over 90% of all of their vocalisations. We don't know what it means, but we, we kind of guess that it's like a greeting call. So it's like a hello, hello kind of call. I see. So mostly they're just going around saying hi, 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 hi all the time. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. We then also went on to use the same algorithm to ask whether different colonies have different voices. And it turns out that each colony seems to have its own distinctive dialect. That was figured out by the machine learning algorithm, but we wanted to see if that's really used by the animals. So we did an experiment actually where we played back soft chirps to an animal and asked whether the animal would answer the chirp if it was from its own colony or if it was from a foreign colony. And it turns out that the Morats would chirp back to a loudspeaker if the chirp was from its own colony, but not from a foreign colony. And you have to be aware that these naked Morats are rather like humans in the sense that they're very xenophobic. So if a, a member of another colony comes into their colony, they will actually almost immediately recognize this animal as a foreigner and kill the animal. And so we figured out that maybe the dialect of the animals is actually a way that the animals can use to identify foreigners that might come into their colony. Where do you think the animal acquires its accent or its dialect from? Do you think it's somehow genetic? No, we don't think it's genetic because we specifically asked whether dialects can be learned by young animals. So we we were able to foster baby mole rats from one colony into another colony. And indeed, what they do is they really adopt the new dialect. So as they're growing up in the first six months of their life, as long as they're exposed to the dialect, they will learn that dialect. So it seems to be very important that the animal adopts the dialect so that he's at home and, and recognized as a member of that colony. What do you think we can learn about how other animals communicate by understanding how mole rats communicate? 
Well, I think one thing is very important here is that the mole rat has been around a lot longer than we have. We know that the mole rat has been around for at least um, 20 million years. And so they have already displayed features of a vocal culture. That it means a, a culture that is learned from their peers. And we often think that's something that is unique to humans. But what's interesting about the mole rat is that we can actually study in the laboratory what is the difference between a mole rat brain and, let's say, the brain of a mouse, which is not at all social, and to see how evolution came up with this sociality, this ability to live in a, in a society together. So we think we can learn a lot about being social by studying the biology of the naked mole rat. It's amazing, isn't it? Gary Lewin there, and uh, the paper describing that work has just been published in the journal Science. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for your audio and video productions. For the rest of the programme this week, we're going to cast a critical eye over the subject of nuclear power. What is the current state of our power generation? And is nuclear a necessary part of a zero carbon future? Or can we, and perhaps should we, manage without it? We're going to kick things off by setting the scene. And first up, here is Eva Higginbotham to explain just what is nuclear power and how does it work? Nuclear energy comes from the cores, the nucleus of certain atoms. And you can make this energy by smashing nuclei together, which is called nuclear fusion. This is why the sun gives out light, but we haven't quite figured out how to do that sustainably on Earth. The other way is by breaking nuclei apart, which is nuclear fission. Nuclear power plants here on Earth work through fission. Most, though not all, atoms that you come across day to day, like most of the ones in you or in your table, are stable. They don't really change and they don't really feel like changing. But some are unstable. We call these radioactive. This is because they have too much stuff in their nucleus. Carbon, for example, usually has six protons and six neutrons in its nucleus, and it's stable. But carbon-14 has six protons and eight neutrons. It's unstable and radioactive. Over time, it will decay, giving out energy until it turns into something else that is stable. We can harness that energy for nuclear power, although not for carbon. It's not nearly unstable enough. Uranium is, though. Uranium is so unstable that if you hit it with a neutron, it will break into two new nuclei and it will give out a few more neutrons. A tiny little bit of the mass of the uranium will be converted into energy because E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. And a little bit of mass turns into a lot of energy, and the neutrons that were made can go off to break up more uranium atoms, and the cycle goes on and on. That is the energy that we use in nuclear reactors. The energy given off is used to heat water, which turns into steam, which powers a turbine. If there are too many neutrons, breaking up too much uranium, making too much heat, it can be dangerous, but we do have ways to control them. Control rods are rods which control things, and they're made of elements that are good at catching neutrons, leaving fewer around to split uranium, slowing the reaction. Now, there have been some very high-profile nuclear disasters, like Chernobyl in 1986 and Fukushima in 2011. But in general, when managed correctly, nuclear power is safe. 
And renewable energy is not without its risk to life. Hydroelectric dams have burst and people can fall from wind turbines, although all renewable energies are much safer to human life than fossil fuels. So the debate in the industry is less concerned, although not unconcerned, with the question of is nuclear power safe and more concerned with is nuclear power necessary? Thank you very much, Eva. So that is how nuclear power works. But to really get a grip on where the conflict lies, it is important to understand the state of nuclear power today and how people feel about it. Matt Rooney is Head of Policy at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. So, Matt, what is the exact state of power-wise and the breakup in the UK right now? So this is obviously changing quite rapidly due to decarbonisation. But broadly, about 40% of the last couple of years has come from renewable sources. So that's wind, solar, hydro and biomass primarily. About 40% comes from fossil fuels, it's primarily gas, but also coal and oil. And then just less than 20% has been from nuclear fission. So that's a snapshot of things right now. But what are the trends? What's growing? What's falling? So there have been two big trends over the last few years that will continue. The first is a massive decline in coal. And this has obviously been good news for decarbonisation because it's the most carbon intensive fuel we use. And the second is a, an expansion of all renewables, really, but particularly offshore wind. And the reason for the coal decline has been government policy. So the government have committed to phasing out coal by 2025, but also these plants are older and also they have to pay a carbon tax. And as it's the most carbon intensive fuel, it pays the highest carbon tax. Offshore wind is more a triumph of, of engineering because the the industry has managed to bring down costs over the last few years astoundingly. Costs of offshore wind have come down by more than half, so it's become one of the go-to low-carbon technologies. What about how people feel about nuclear power? What are the perceptions right now? So last year, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers commissioned ICM to conduct a poll into nuclear power in the UK and how the public feels about it. The headline figures where 40% support nuclear power for electricity production in the UK and 27% oppose. Delving a little bit deeper into the results, the biggest factor was age. So if you're a young person, you're more likely to be skeptical of nuclear power and the older you get, the more likely you are to be pro-nuclear. One of the other questions we asked people was, do you think nuclear power is low carbon? And the results for this were interesting because they tracked broadly with the age groups and whether they're pro or anti. So only 26% of young people think that nuclear power is low carbon. So that's 18 to 24 year olds. Whereas for 65 to 74 year olds, 61% of people think that nuclear power is low carbon. And what kind of things have got us to the point where these beliefs are in the way they are? It's difficult to say, but young people have obviously been very enthusiastic about tackling climate change. So organizations like Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion are are very anti-nuclear power. So that may have influenced the views of young people. Sometimes I wonder if things like Homer Simpson, you know, the nuclear safety technician (laughs) played a role. Do you think that that had an impact? Uh, I'm only uh, being slightly facetious when I think the Simpsons have a large role to play in negative views about nuclear power. 
but and also TV shows like HBO's Chernobyl, you know, when big accents get into the public's mind, that can influence things. And we did see that after the Fukushima accident, where in Japan in particular, understandably, attitudes towards nuclear power declined massively, but also in countries like Germany as well. Um, what about other places that have different views? France is the one to springs to mind. They're, they're much more pro-nuclear. What's going on differently there? Yeah, so when you ask people who are pro-nuclear what they associate nuclear power with is things like a national endeavour or energy independence or energy security. And France built up most of their nuclear power industry in the 70s and 80s. It was an astounding feat, really. They, they completely decarbonized their electricity system in 20 years using almost completely nuclear power. And that was a, a national program, and it was not it was not built on decarbonization. It was done for energy security reasons off the back of the oil shocks of the 1970s. Matt Rooney, thank you very much. The big question around nuclear energy is, do we actually need it at all? Is it cost effective or is it just a money pit? Are there alternative non-nuclear options that are up to the job in terms of dependability and resilience? And can they meet the changing patterns of energy consumption that we foresee coming in the future, especially as we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and we plug in more devices like electric cars, for example? So is nuclear an expensive luxury or is it an essential ingredient in our race to cut carbon emissions and combat climate change? Well, we're going to chew over some of those facts uh, with and some of those ideas with uh, two researchers, Michael Rushton, who's from Bangor University, where he looks at nuclear materials and how they behave. And also David Toke, who's from the University of Aberdeen. He works on energy policy and looks at renewable sources. So welcome to both of you. Uh, Michael, just to kick off with you, I'd like to put some skin on the bones around the, the sort of energy equation first, if we could. And perhaps you could give us some insights into how much energy a country like the UK actually gets through and how that is changing with new technology, old technology being phased out, etc. So the energy generated 2019 was about 325 terawatt hours. So that's significant. But that only represents 20% of our overall energy use. So we also have heating and transport. So as we decarbonise, it's expected a lot of that will be moved to electricity production. So that's why we're talking about how do we expand electricity generation capacity. Nuclear at the moment generates 17% of that. And in terms of the low carbon component of that energy generation, that's about 32%. It's diminishing at the moment. We've got quite an old nuclear fleet. So the discussion now is how do we replace our existing nuclear power stations? Or indeed, some people should argue that we shouldn't. Yes, indeed, because I think we've got six nuclear installations that are scheduled to shut by 2030. This is less than 10 years away. What are we going to replace them with? I mean, is there a plan to replace them at all? Well, currently in the southwest, they're building the Hinkley Point C reactor. It's a French design. It's an EPR reactor, which will generate 3.2 gigawatts of power. So that's its maximum output. So that's between two reactors. And that's under construction now. So the typical build time for one of these very large reactors is about eight years. It's currently underway now, and once complete, it would be expected to generate 7% of the UK's electricity. So there, there are plans underway to build another one of those, another dual EPR setup, Sizewell C. Sizewell B, of course, is, is the last nuclear reactor we built in the, the UK, which represented a change from what we've been doing before. It was a pressurised water reactor. 
during the early days of nuclear and through to the early 80s, the UK had gone its own way and made gas reactors. So we've got these quite novel reactors running at the moment. And only through the 80s, when we built the PWR, did we start building the same sorts of reactors that the rest of the world built. And that's how we're continuing now with uh, these light water reactors. Uh, David Toke, it's a big number, isn't it? Uh, nearly a third of the electricity now flowing through our grid is coming from renewables. Now, if you'd said that to somebody five, ten years ago, they probably would have massively underestimated where we would be by today. It really has come on, in my view. Yes, and I think there's a massive potential to do more. I think the government's climate advisers suggest that we're going to need a very big increase in electricity production. But based on their figures, you would actually need to take up in terms of space only 7% of the UK's offshore waters to supply all the energy requirements of the UK in 2015. And by all, I mean all, not just currently supplied by electricity, but transport, heating, industry, etc., that's that's not much is it i mean it it points to another important thing we should probably discuss which is of course when you build a nuclear power station at least the current design of nuclear power stations we have right now you're putting an enormous spend and an enormous facility in one place and of course we don't all live in one place so that immediately means you've got a distribution problem so is there another advantage to, to, to distributing things like wind farms i mean i know you've got to bring the energy ashore in the first place but that can be done is there an advantage to spreading things out a bit more rather than focusing the energy in one place like in a big nuclear installation well yes it is easier on the electricity system if things suddenly go down but also we're moving into a much more digitalized computer controlled age where we have an integration of energy supply and energy demand you know we're going to have cars that talk to the electricity system and transfer energy both ways through batteries and we'll even have washing machines that talk to the grid in future decentralized forms of energy that is energy that produces without a centralised command from the grid are really much more in tune with modernity than, dare I say, clunky old nuclear power. I suppose you'd say, though, Michael, notwithstanding what David's pointing out, that actually the sun doesn't shine at night and the wind doesn't always blow. No, it certainly doesn't. So on the figures from last year, the wind turbines only generated 30% of their total output. Then there are whole days. We all know the cold, clear days where you have extended periods of high pressure over the entire country. And those are the days you want to turn your heating on. So if we talk about electrifying heating and the wind's not blowing, what do you do then? You need something to fill in that lack of power. Also, to come back to that idea of the, the area, I've got some numbers written down in front of me. And um, Hinkley Point C is a 430-acre site. There's a, a wind farm just down the road from me where I live that generates 567 megawatts. And that's six times less power than the Hinkley Point C installation. And that takes up 50 times the area. So nuclear power is incredibly compact. And frankly, not everyone wants to look at wind turbines spoiling their sea views. Well, I don't think, I don't think many people that, want to look at Hinkley Power Station no, necessarily it, either. But it's a small installation and you don't have to look at it. Turn your back, but wind turbines take up a considerable part of the coastline. Well, well, can we look at the cost for a second? Because, David, how much does the 
30% or so of our energy coming from renewables. How much does that cost to install in the first place? So I've just looked at the price tag for Hinkley, which Michael's just mentioned, this new nuclear power station, which is still, you know, prices are still rising. The price tag on that is £23 billion. So how much does our infrastructure from renewables cost to install? A small fraction of that price. But can I come back to the points that were made? Sure, you know, I accept that you can go days on end without sufficient wind or sun, but you can easily store the renewable energy by converting it into a range of different liquid fuels or even water capacity and use extremely cheap engines or turbines to produce the electricity when you need it. And if you have a system involving substantial amounts of nuclear power, because it has to be made for financial reasons to run practically all the time, it's inflexible and you'll end up knocking off a lot of wind farms off the grid and wasting their energy. This is already happening in Scotland where there's a lot of grid constraints. We've done quite a bit of research on that. And with that uh, wind power or solar power that's wasted, well, you can in effect store it and use it when you want it. And we've got plenty of batteries to even out flows within the day. And you've got longer term means of storage, as I say. And this business about the space things are taking up. Well, as I say, we're developing wind farm technology that's increasingly cheap in price that's miles and miles away from the uh, shore, floating wind turbines even. So you don't need to worry about seeing them. I don't think there's a problem here. I mean, admittedly, you know, there's more space for wind turbines on shore in Scotland, there are around Cambridge, but really that doesn't matter with the amount of offshore resources we've got for offshore wind in this country. One thing that's not that far away, though, is 2050, at the rate at which time is increasingly on wheels. And that's the date that we have said we're going to try and be zero carbon. But looking at the figures, we, we've got a long way to go. We're still obtaining in the ballpark of half our energy from fossil fuels and if as michael's pointing out you end up with the wind not blowing and the sun not shining at certain points of the day we do need something to smooth things out we don't have i know what you said but we don't have the infrastructure yet to have mass storage of this energy and it's very expensive to do so people have put forward ideas of let's shunt some of the spare energy into people's car batteries but a few percent of people have electric cars at the moment and an even smaller proportion will be willing to have their batteries potentially damaged by the relentless shunting of energy backwards and forwards from their car onto the grid. So there's quite a way to go, wouldn't you say, David, yet? Well, yes, but you try building nuclear power stations. I mean, we've had attempts to get new nuclear online, first announced by Tony Blair in 2006. And if we're lucky, very lucky, we might get one online 20 years later in 2026. I mean, you can take carbon dioxide out of the air and change it into some synthetic fuel like petrol like if you if you like there are probably better means of even doing it than that you can store these things hydrogen through water storage god knows lots of things but no money's being spent on this this could be quite easily 
put together a market set up to get the best mix of technologies to provide long term storage. But we've got an energy system and energy companies that have their business in either or both fossil fuels and nuclear power. And of course, they're not producing any policy reports or any pressure to do stuff about a 100 percent renewable energy system. They've got it all tied up. Well, we need to get people to push for the government to get some thinking on providing a much higher level of energy from renewable energy, leading up to eventually what will be 100% renewable supply. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and my guests this week are Michael Rushton, who is at Bangor University and works on nuclear materials, and David Toke, who's from the University of Aberdeen and looks at alternative energy, renewable energy and energy policy. We're discussing whether or not nuclear has a future and how big that future might or might not be in this and other countries going forward. Michael, there was an interesting idea floated by Rolls-Royce recently, and this was their concept of what they dub an SMR, small modular reactors. We've talked about big installations like Sizewell and Hinkley, which are massive in comparison. Rolls-Royce envisage a fleet of small reactors, which they're saying you could build more locally, you could make them more aesthetic why do they think that that's the way to go? Well, there's multiple reasons, really. The main problem with nuclear is nothing technical. We, we can build reactors. Like, as, as was mentioned before, the French built 56 reactors over 15 years to produce 50 gigawatts and have basically decarbonised their electricity system, one of the few in the world. So the trouble is getting the finance to build the reactors. That's the thing that's causing a problem at the moment. The main running cost of a nuclear reactor is, is meeting the debt, is paying the mortgage on the reactor. So if we could bring that down to rates where you could borrow in the commercial markets and not have to go for handouts to, to the government, that would be beneficial. So what one thought to do that is to, to make the reactors smaller. If you can bring the cost down to around £300 million and bring capacity to the grid incrementally, you can have a reactor that's quicker to build, you know, three or four years. It's earning for you and you can borrow more easily to build the next one and you can incrementally bring capacity to the grid. Because at the moment with these big reactors, we're dumping a lot of capacity on the grid in one go right so you have to wait eight years and then you get a huge amount of power and you get that for about 60 to 80 years right so these things are going to be around for two to three times longer than wind turbines and that sort of thing so that, that needs to be borne in mind there's other things we could do with small modular reactors because they're small the components can be built in factories so you get those economies of scale the idea is if you build lots of them you bring the unit cost down dramatically rolls-royce are also talking about could we start doing things like co-generation reactors generate a lot of heat and one of the issues we're going to have in the future is not everything can be electrified. Not all our industries can be, uh, you know, can be converted to electricity. Things like making concrete, making iron and steel, that kind of thing. Certainly, particularly the iron steel case, like a blast furnace uses coal as a chemical there. It's not used just to, for the heat. So you could use a bit of hydrogen. That's already been mentioned. You know, nuclear can also generate hydrogen. Nuclear can also pump in a bit of heat. For, for iron and steel, you'd actually be looking at a second generation of reactors, looking more the mid-2030s for this, where you'd go back to what Britain is good at, actually, gas reactors, which can run a lot hotter. If you could get those up to 800 or 900 degrees, you could make steel using nuclear power. If there's a bit of a push there, we do have the technology to, to decarbonise these difficult-to-decarbonise processes that aren't suitable for electrification. It's a fascinating application, actually, the idea of coupling up a, re a reactor to to really use it as a heat source rather than just an, an electricity source. Now, just in closing, I'd actually like to come back to a point that both of you have made along the way, and that's this question of aesthetics. And 
also the perception. We were hearing from Matt Rooney earlier about what people's perceptions are about these different things. And there's a difference between older people and younger people, um, people who have and haven't had experience in the industry or are more or less educated about the science involved. So what do you think, David, first, needs to really happen from your perspective for more people to be supportive of where you're coming from in this regard? I think people are supportive of where I'm coming from. I think, curiously enough, the outlandish ideas, I'm not trying to be insulting or anything, are, are with things like small modular reactors, which have been tried many times before, and they actually exist in the form of nuclear submarines, and they're extremely expensive. I mean, there are a million issues with that. I think this really is a question of engineering interest, taking account of what is wishful thinking, uh, renewable energy, solar power, wind power, electric cars, batteries are the thing that are the cheapest, obviously practical. We ought to firm that up, improve the systems for that, and we can produce hydrogen for niche sources like making concrete and so on from that. I don't see a problem for that. That's ready. We can go ahead with that. Now, we don't have to entertain these what I think are unlikely ideas. Michael, you've got a bit of an uphill struggle to to, uh, come up with a compelling argument, really, uh, when you're faced with the fact that you could just build a whole heap of wind turbines and they're not going to be a blot on the landscape if you don't want them to be, you take them away. A lot of the previous discussion is predicated on technologies that don't exist at the scale that they're needed for. So if you want to go to these large amounts of wind, 70, 80, 90%, uh, that means you've displaced things like dispatchable sources like gas. Now, as we've gone through, the wind doesn't blow all the time. So how, how are you going to fill that gap? Well, we've already had the discussion that we're going to use batteries, apparently. Now, the largest battery storage methods at the moment cost a lot of, lot of money. There's also competition for those cells for making electric cars, which we also need to decarbonise transport. Current battery storage lasts for only a few hours at, at very low power outputs. It's not credible what's being argued here. So all these ideas that washing machines that can talk to the, the generator, that doesn't exist now. Right, we're in the middle of a climate emergency. Why are we reaching for tools that don't exist? We should rely on the technologies that have been proven over 60 years. I guess one thing that is absolutely certain is that time definitely will tell. And unfortunately, time has beaten us to it here, so we must stop at that point. But thank you very much indeed to Michael Rushton and also David Toke and before them, Matt Rooney. Now, before we go, something completely different, and it is time for Question of the Week. And you'll, you'll see why I phrased it that way when you hear what Phil Sansom's been looking into for one of our younger listeners, Eleonora. Hi, I want to know why my dad shivers when he pees. Eleonora told us she also experiences this herself, so her dad is not unique, and neurologist Kieran Allenson agrees. Pee shivers, or having an involuntary shiver while having a pee, is a real thing that some people do experience. Jalesh Panikar, a neurourologist, which is a fantastic job title, says it's more often experienced by boys and men. Particularly when peeing large volumes, standing up. We don't fully understand why it happens. However, there are a couple of possibilities. I'll let Jalesh and Kieran take it from here. The first idea is more from common sense and based on the fact that we shiver when feeling cold. When peeing, warm private areas and pee are exposed to cold air. But it might just shiver automatically to warm up. 
but I find this hard to believe because this would cause shivering when you remove clothing generally and not just when you go to the toilet. It's more likely that pee shivers is down to the nerves. It has to do with the autonomic nervous system, which is part of the nervous system that controls involuntary things like body temperature, sweating, shivering, etc. The parasympathetic component of the system, which handles resting state functions such as digestion, springs into action and instructs the bladder muscle to push urine out of the bladder. When urine leaves the body, oddly, the blood pressure drops slightly, and the sympathetic component, which handles the fight or flight response, then kicks in, releasing a shower of neurotransmitters in an effort to raise the blood pressure. This results in mixed signals between these two components of the autonomic nervous system, which is thought to trigger an involuntary shiver. It affects men more than women, probably because they stand up to pee, and therefore are more prone in the, to the drop in blood pressure because the blood has to get to their head past more gravity. Unfortunately, we don't know why it affects some people and not others. So let me summarize. Your autonomic nervous system is the nerves that you can't control. It's got multiple parts, one of which, called the parasympathetic component, helps you pee. This can lower your blood pressure, accidentally triggering the sympathetic component, which may be giving mixed signals that are causing a shiver. Thanks to our forum users for coming to the same conclusion. Plus, user Evan added the point that sometimes a shake is helpful to get out the last few drips. Next time, a question that is music to my ears from listener Dennis. Assuming there are a finite number of musical notes, chords, notes and octaves, at what point, how many years, will we use all combinations of musical themes so that no more original music could be created? So when are we going to run out of music? If you're interested in breaking out your calculator and becoming a prophet of artistic doom, why not do so on our forum? That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. There's a question of the week board there. Or if, on the other hand, you have a question of your own that you'd like us to answer, then why not email it? It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also track us down on Twitter or Facebook. And that is it for this week. Next time, what happens when the scientist becomes the experiment? We are examining the strange world of self-experimentation, including biologists taking DIY COVID vaccines today. Are they self-sacrificing success stories or reckless risk-takers? We'll be finding out. Thank you very much in the meantime to the people who've been donating to The Naked Scientist to keep us going. You can find out how you can do that, and we're very grateful indeed. Especially to Ranjit, actually, who sent a complaint and a donation. So thank you to him. It was a tongue-in-cheek complaint. you find out how to do that at nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.